Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners of the Missing Moramari podcast. Welcome back. I am Tim. I'm joined here with Lance. And we wanted to do an episode where we are strictly responding to the comments and questions that we've gotten so far. I first wanted to say thank you very much to the supporters of this show. And the people who have provided us with a ton of information that we weren't aware of, uh, information that has um, been lost in the whole, uh, the whole mix of the thing. Please follow us on Twitter at MaraMuriDoc, D-O-C, as in documentary, because again, this is going to be a documentary. And we did get a tweet from Baz Philpot who asked if the documentary is ready yet, and it is not. We are still working on it. It'll probably be ready at some point in 2016, but one of the reasons we are doing the podcast is to generate interest for the documentary. There are a lot of spaces that you can comment about this podcast that we will see. You can email us at missingmoramurray at gmail.com. You can tweet us. You can check out our YouTube page, youtube.com slash missingmoramurray. Also, if you want to contact us more directly, if you have information that we haven't uncovered at this point, if you have any comments on maybe some uh, inconsistencies that we've had, the best way to contact us directly would be the Gmail account missingmoramurray at gmail.com. We want participation on this podcast because we are trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. So if we're incorrect with anything or if we gloss over something or if you catch something that we missed, please send it to us because we want your help. We want some closure for Maura and her family and the people like us who are looking for her still. A lot of the comments we've been seeing on James Renner's blog or on the YouTube page or the Reddit page are theories, your theories, and we love them. We're very appreciative that you're posting them. However, we do not want to get into that quite yet. We want to wait a few episodes and we want to give our own theories for sure. We want to give your theories as well, but we first want to lay out the whole story, the timeline for people who have never heard of this. I know a lot have heard this story for many years, you're familiar with this, and you have your own theories already. We want people who don't know anything about this story to first hear it and then come up with their own theories so they can comment on ours. One of the first emails we received was from a gentleman named Clint. 
Clint is a professional journalist of 14 years, and he managed to get an interview. It was an email interview with Karen Mayotte. She's the former supervisor at UMass Amherst. She was Mora's supervisor when we originally stated that Mora received a phone call while at work, a phone call so disturbing that it caused her to go into a um, like a stupor and stare blankly at the wall and only able to say the words, my sister. There's a little bit of um, clarity now in her email interview with Clint. Karen remembers a co-worker, a fellow supervisor, telling her that something was up with Mora. She's been crying. She can't remember how she responded to him, she also can't remember what questions she asked after that, but what she does remember was walking Mora to her dorm, knowing how upset she was. If I recall correctly from that email, there may never have even been a call in the first place that Mora said my sister after. Exactly. Uh, when Karen first encountered Mora, she's quoted as saying, Mora was staring blankly ahead and not responsive to me even walking in the dorm. She remembered walking in, and she was just staring kind of past her, not focusing on her as she approached her desk. When she walked up to Mora at the desk, she noticed that the cell phone was there. And I think that is how this got misconstrued into Mora made a phone call, because one thing that Karen remembers, one little, like a note that kind of stayed in her head, was that they weren't allowed to have cell phones at the time, so she made the subconscious connection, oh, Mora's upset about a phone call. But there was never actually any any proof or anyone coming forward to say that Mora had spoken on the phone to somebody at that particular moment that made her so upset. And I believe that the police in a statement to the media mentioned that there may have been a phone call. And then I think at that after that happened, it almost became fact in the mind of investigators like us. Absolutely, because what else would cause that? You walk into the room, the the girl is upset, the phone's right there. First thing you think is they got a phone call that has affected them in such a way. And just because the police said this may have happened doesn't mean that this definitely happened. Also something to note, this this interview is very interesting. Karen considered herself really good at making friends and making friends feel comfortable and willing to talk to her about what was bothering them. But with Mora that night, she reported that she wasn't able to do so. She asked her what was wrong. She wasn't sure how many times she asked her. She didn't respond right away. And then she just said, my sister, when gesturing towards the cell phone. Karen then remembers that Mora started crying. And I suppose as anyone would do, any friend, any supervisor would do, she asked her what was wrong. At that point, Mora still didn't respond. Karen was hoping she would say something to her that was more specific regarding her sister. She still didn't respond. At that point, two girls entered the dorm. One lived in the dorm. She swiped her card, but the girl she was with... Karen says she was unsure about whether or not she lived in the dorm. Generally, she doesn't say anything to them. The receptionist, that being Mora, should be the one to call out, asking all of them to show their IDs. The friend didn't live there. She would ask them to come over, sign in. When Mora didn't ask for the ID, Karen states that at that point she was sure that Mora was not in a good emotional state to stay on duty. So she basically saw Mora not performing up to the tasks of the night. 
Uh, she wasn't in a good emotional state to do anything. Another interesting point that Karen brings up is that she, at that point, shared to Mora that Karen herself had been depressed for years. And she was worried about her in this state. And I think that's interesting because this woman instantly notices that Mora is exhibiting some forms of depressive symptoms just kind of out of the blue. Karen then told her if she wanted, when she got off the shift in a little while, they both could go get some coffee after. Mora just simply shook her head, said no, said she had an early class in the morning. She noticed a a large nursing book in front of her. And Karen was thinking that's got to be something that is stressing her out as well. So Karen ripped out uh, some paper, wrote down her cell phone on it, and told her to call her whenever. At any point, if there was anything she could do for her, because all she wanted to do was help her feel better. As this is going on, Mora's still not talking to Karen. And Karen realizes that she should get ready to leave her shift, so she takes out her sheet where she has to sign her key back in. She's off duty. She's sitting there, as normally as as she would, grabs all of her stuff to get up to her dorm. She remembers Mora picking up her nursing book, physically cleaning up her desk, putting her her materials in the backpack, specifically what materials she can't remember, another textbook or notebook. And Karen carries those items back to her, follows her out, carries the items back, remembers putting her arm around her shoulders. They walk back to uh, where she lived, to Kennedy, her dorm, about 300 feet away. She swipes her into her dorm and told her that she was worried to leave her alone like this. Mora told her she had a roommate, so it was okay. However, Karen finds out later on that Mora lived in a single dorm, so that was a lie. Karen gives her a kiss on the cheek, gives her a hug, and walks back out to the lobby, calls her head supervisor, and Karen tells her head supervisor that she was worried about leaving Mora in that state. Head supervisor said thanks for walking her back. So the next morning, they actually had classes uh, canceled due to snow. And Karen remembered thinking a bit relieved that Mora didn't have the classes and could sleep in and, and rest. Karen considered calling to check in, but thought that that might be a little bit weird because she was just a work friend and never really saw her in any other uh, social context. The last part of the interview here has Clint asking about the reaction Karen had to seeing Mora staring blankly ahead. And if this was just a college student kind of daydreaming, being spaced out. And Karen's response was, I totally think that something was really wrong with Mora as she just looked right past me as I walked into the dorm that night. And was definitely not a daydream kind of stare. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about a couple of other points that I thought were interesting. He emailed us again just the other day, and uh, he mentioned that Fred was living in Shelton, Connecticut, at a hotel in Shelton, Connecticut, during the time that Mora went missing, not in Weymouth, Massachusetts. Right. Shelton, Connecticut, uh, said for several months, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess he was working a job, a radiology job over there, which is what he did. At a hospital? Yes. And he would visit, is it something like he would visit or visit Mora while he was there? Or? According to Clint, or actually according to Fred, 
He said he would visit about every other weekend. It is a 95-mile drive, so about an hour and 40 minutes. And he would visit her every other weekend, and he'd been staying there every weekend for several months? Or he'd just been living there, so the hospital was putting him up? I guess so. That sound fishy to you? Uh, no, no. I would assume that uh, if you're on contract with a hospital uh, and you're more than, you know, an hour or so away, that they'll work something out where, you know, they'll put you up at a hotel. Mm-hmm. Several months, though. Like, that's a that's a pretty long contract. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to make anything out of it that it's probably not, you know. Mm-hmm. If anybody has any information on, you know, how long he stayed there, I, I suppose that's... That's helpful, but if, according to him, he said that he's there for several months on a contract, that's a pretty bold lie to make. If, yeah, if it's gonna make a lie, I feel like I'm reaching a bit to to put to to you know put Fred in a position of um, malice. Fair enough. Yeah, it's definitely easy for the police to have um, you know corroborated his alibi. Most likely, he was telling the truth on this one. Also, regarding Fred and his hotel visits. There was a couple of questions that we got about the hotel situation the night before Mora went missing. And it w- they were saying, well, well, how do you know there's only one bed in that room? And I can't remember exactly how we assumed, I, I suppose, that there was one bed. I think this is one of those things that is not known right now. There may have been two beds. Yeah, the point that some have made has, has been, you know, for the majority, they say, that's weird, Mora slept in, in Fred's bed. Like, how did he not know that that she, how did he not know that she was there when he woke up the next morning? But the point that Clint's making here, who's, he's another one of our sources, is that there were several two-bedroom or two-bed units in uh, the Quality Inn that he stayed at in Hadley. Um, and, uh, I think that's one of the things that we're trying to clear up right now is that it's been kind of assumed for a long time that there was one bed. I guess it was kind of assumed slash wondered about. And then, you know, the, the, the juicier story is that there was one bed in the room. So what we really have to do is take a step back and say, no, they actually had two bed units in there. So until we get a definite answer on that. you know it's still in the air it's all speculation yeah just kind of got to assume that maybe she slept in her own bed and that's why fred didn't wake up and that's why maybe in his report it didn't he didn't make it out to be a big deal because honestly when you read the report he kind of says it in such a nonchalant way i woke up at about 10 o'clock and Mora was up at about 10 30 right our source clinton here he, he goes on to tell us that there were two bedroom units there because he stayed there he's gone there and he stayed at that hotel it's a comfort inn now and he knows for a fact that they've always offered two bed uh two bed bedrooms and he knows for a fact that they they've always offered two bed bedrooms okay it'd be cool to get clint on yeah it would be nice he's been he's been pretty good over the past few weeks so we really appreciate it thank you very much clint we knew that Mora was in the nursing program but i don't think we realized how fast she got uh, her her way into it she you know it was only uh about two weeks into the semester the, the new semester at umass when she went missing and uh clint uh uses the word catap- 
catapulted her way into the nursing program and earned a uh, coveted spot in the clinical rotation. So that's pretty impressive how she uh, managed to do that, basically leapfrogging over other um, students. So we have no doubt Maura was incredibly intelligent is, I guess, the only way to put it. She got into West Point. She did get kicked out for a stupid decision. But and then she gets into a coveted nursing program at the University of Massachusetts, a very good nursing school. Yep. Uh, Mora, a fresh major transfer from chemical engineering, which enabled her to rapidly earn a spot in the clinicals. And um, according to Clint, that's rare. Also, we found out about the phone call that Mora made before she left campus, the one that we talked about on episode three, how it was supposedly inconsequential. It was a um, a message she called a fellow UMass student, and that was all the information we had on it. Well, it turns out that the call she made was about a lab coat that she had borrowed from a fellow student, and apparently she went by this person's dorm or residence to drop off the lab coat before she left that night. That's a good bit of uh, clarity right there. I think so. I think that says a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a loose end that she tied up. I see what you're saying. Yeah, she actually borrowed something, returned it, didn't, wanna, didn't want it to go unreturned. Yeah, I, I guess so. Interesting I mean, to get into the uh, psychology of that. Mm-hmm. So is that somebody who wants to tie up all loose ends and, and um, disappear without a trace? Or is that somebody who wants to tie up all loose ends and, and commit suicide? I don't know. I think to me, it's it could be either, but uh, I I would kind of think it it might be more suicide because she she would probably assume that this person wouldn't get the lab coat back if you know it was just grouped in with a dead girl's belongings. And then what what kind of other student would what kind of heartless student would come to the investigators and say, hey, by the way, there's a lab coat in there that's mine. That's just kind of creepy and weird, and no one would do that. So. Maybe she wanted to give it back. Yeah, it's also a little insensitive after somebody commits suicide where your first thought is, um, yeah, she borrowed my lab coat. Yeah. Also, yeah, we got another com- a couple comments about Mora having packed up some of her belongings before leaving that day. And one of the comments mentioned that sometimes people who commit suicide do that for the people who eventually will have to clean up their stuff that they'll pack it up neatly for them and then commit the act of suicide. Obviously, we don't know that that had anything to do with it here, but uh, it could, I suppose, with Mora, right? Yeah, I suppose it could. Initially, Fred implied that his daughter went up to the mountains to end it all, to commit suicide. And that, that was something that Fred had said earlier on. But according to what we've uh, got here from the uh, Clint files... He regrets to ever saying that. He regrets to implying that his daughter was suicidal. And that's when he makes that public shift to say that she was abducted by some local dirtbag, which is also something that he probably should have regretted saying uh, in retrospect. And then we go right back to the rag and the tailpipe again, which always kind of <laughs> doesn't that always kind of seem to be the the crux of the whole thing, the rag and the tailpipe, you come up with a theory and then it's the rag and the tailpipe. Like, what is that about? It is. Because that would suggest suicide. That would suggest an inexperienced person with suicide, you know, I'm going to like 
him. Yeah. Exhaust myself out of the car. One of the things we missed was an article written by James Renner back a little while ago, an interview with Mora's roommate at West Point. And so some facts came out in this article that we did not mention on the podcast. And the first thing was that Mora was asked to leave West Point because she stole makeup at the gift shop at Fort Knox during a training trip. Mora confided later, and I quote, it was so stupid, I only took $5 worth of stuff. So this report is saying that Mora got kicked out of West Point for stealing makeup? So that is our breach of honor code? Yes. We had mentioned last one of our last episodes that Mora was asked to leave West Point and we didn't know why. Well, this is the reason why. Another thing that comes out in this article is that Mora's ex-roommate, Megan Sawyer, mentioned a few things about Mora. She did say that Mora's bulimia was well known. And the quote is, she had issues with loving herself. Megan says, Julie, her sister, Maura's sister, was unusually hard on her. Julie would harp on her about studying and running. And then Maura would get down on herself about it. Megan goes on to say that she does believe that Maura could start a new life if she wanted to. Here's the quote. If she wanted to disappear, she could. She never wanted to look bad in front of people. After she crashed her father's car and this trouble with the credit cards, I think she probably thought if I just disappeared, they wouldn't think badly of me. I believe she's alive. It's just a feeling I've always had. That's Mora's old roommate, someone who knows her a lot better than we do. She also said that Mora went through basic training and knows how to fire a machine gun from the top of a tank. Something that I don't know how to do. <laughs> Megan also says that Helena Murray, who runs the Facebook group, told Megan, don't say these negative things, watch what you tell people, quote unquote. Julie emailed us and said two things about after listening to the podcast. One, my husband is a mechanic, and I asked him after the intro about the rag in the tailpipe. He said it would make things worse, period. On that, Tammy also emailed us, and her husband is also a mechanic. And she asked him about the rag in the tailpipe, and he said there is absolutely no reason to stuff a rag in the tailpipe. If someone did, it would blow out the pipe. He said he knows this because one of the diagnostic tests he does requires him to put a rag in the tailpipe and run the engine. In order to do this, he has to have a second mechanic stand with a long pole and physically keep the rag in the tailpipe. He said in the instance it was stuffed in there and jammed well enough that by some chance it didn't blow out, it would burn up and the car engine would run very slowly and with little power. Eventually the rag would burn up enough and blow out. I'm not a mechanic... But that is a very, very specific answer, and the guy seems to know exactly what would happen if you put a rag in the tailpipe and you drive the car a considerable distance. Yes, but Possumosh on YouTube commented in the completely opposite way. said, there are two reasons that I was told to put a rag in my exhaust when I was driving a rust bucket as a lad. I had a car that 
like Mara's, had a cylinder that was not functioning properly. This causes two things to happen mechanically. Mara's dad has stated various places that there was, at the very least, a blown head gasket, which can fry a ring on a cylinder because of the lack of lubrication, because of the oil being burned or leaked from the broken head gasket. This causes a lack of compression in the engine, as well as oil to be mixed with the fuel being burned in the good cylinders, which is expelled as a black smoke and burning oil out of the exhaust. So Possumash goes on to say his dad told him to do the same thing when he was around 18 years old, and he's about a year older than Mora. He can also attest to the fact that it worked until he could save up enough money to rebuild his motor. And that did help. Thank you very much. Well, it, it, it helped with a point, but it didn't really help solve the issue at hand. Uh, it actually maybe muddied it because we thought we had the answer that there would be no good to this at all. But uh, here's a comment saying that there still may have been some good from it. It's sort of an old school theory. It could be an old school theory, and I really don't see any reason why somebody like Fred would tell Mora put the rag in the tailpipe knowing that she lives on campus if she's driving she's only going to be driving a short distance and if this is something that actually helps then yeah put the rag in the tailpipe and you know it'll help you in these short distance trips um that being said he you know he didn't know that she was going to be driving off to the white mountains it's a good illustration of how there can be so many theories on this case someone who was told this by their dad in their past can very easily much more easily believe fred's story than someone who has never told this sure and we're looking at comments that are polar opposite you have somebody saying that this is absolutely not what they would do a mechanic saying period i would not do this this is not going to help a single situation and then you have another commenter saying i did this my dad told me to do it and it uh it 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 helped in the meantime yeah, and it can work. Until he had enough money to rebuild the motor. I don't know, last I knew, a motor costs probably around $3,000. Maybe Fred took out the, the $4,000 to, to help her buy a motor. We got another email from Ryan in Tennessee who urged us to look at Alden Howes Olson says something about him just just creeps the hell out of me um so if you don't know who alden house olsen is we are planning to do an episode on him but google him before then because we don't want to get too into it now but you will find some interesting things on him including some videos ryan from tennessee goes on to say that he thinks that that Alden wrote a, his own blog post, which uh, we'll link to in the show notes. He he thinks that it was a response from James Renner's post about him. To start off with his blog, just if I'm going to read a little bit of it, I just want to say he go he says that some of this writing is true in the literal sense, some false. Some of it is neither true nor false. It may have no particular me- meaning or intention. Posting dates are irrelevant. Kind of an interesting preface, I guess, to any theory that he has. And the thing is, Alden actually has some good theories. So we um, we are very interested in his theories as far as why he made the videos. We'll get into that, what we think about that. Uh, we would really love to hear from him about why he did it. 
because if we had him on, we would have to ask him. Absolutely. And, of course, the videos, when you see them, they're freaky. He's, he's, he's messing around with people. He's, he's playing with people. I've gotten seriously freaked out watching his videos regarding the Maura Murray case. But when you read his other blog, which is called Passing Through Town... If you didn't know who this guy was, if you didn't see the videos beforehand, this is real good writing. Yeah, he's definitely got some talent. We do want to know what Alden really thinks uh, because he is so passionate about this that we would love to hear it from him. Some of his theories on this blog don't seem 100% uh, thought out isn't the right word. You know, he's, he's given them a lot of thought, but he goes, you know, he's, he prefaces the whole blog with saying that some of this may not be true. So uh, we're just curious if he is so into this, what his theories are. Amongst the emails that we've gotten, we've received some inside information from an anonymous source. Our anonymous source provides unsubstantiated claims regarding Mora leaving the party the night she crashed her father's car at UMass Amherst. There's been a name that has been floated out there. Stefanos, S-T-E-F-A-N-O-S. Or Stefanos. S-T-E-P-H-A-N-O-S. This was in some way allegedly a relation to Kate Markopoulos. Well, they both sound Greek. Um, and our source does say that they don't know if it's a first or a surname. We have other sources that claim that the party never even existed in the first place. The reason for that claim is that there's been so much talk about this party that Mora went to and left at 3.30 in the morning and got into the accident. There's been so much talk about this online and so many people have come forward about other things, but not a single person has ever come forward claiming that they were at the party. Not a single person has read the blog and claimed that they were there and saw Mora and saw Mora's friends. Yeah. So that just leads people to believe that maybe this party didn't exist. Or it was just really small. But then if it's really small, how come Morris friends don't remember anybody that was at the party? If it was all them and they don't remember who Mora left with? Well, I mean, again, I know we're going to save our theories, but what if Kate, you know, is really, what if this Stephanos or Stephanos is Kate Markopoulos' cousin, for example? And he did leave with Mora that night. Maybe they did discuss running away. And they all talked about never talking about it. I mean, that would actually give them some motive to say, oh, I don't know. Or just not answer questions about it. Say, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know anyone else at that party. Don't know who she left with. Never heard of him. Never saw him before. No idea. And There's some motive there. And where's this Stefanos now then? I don't know. I mean, if Mora's been missing for 11 years and she leaves with someone, where did where did that guy go? I mean, there's no guarantee that this guy helped her escape or, or get away, disappear. Uh, this guy could have just been, you know, anywhere from a one-night stand to just someone she 
you know, put her head on his shoulder for an hour that night and just maybe told him some of her troubles. Maybe he disappeared into the darkness and Kate was protecting him and knowing he didn't do anything. Maybe he didn't have anything to do with this. So we received a lot of good emails and comments about the rag in the tailpipe. People's opinions on if that's good or bad. I would love to get a little more in depth on this party. This party that if it was if it was so big no one remembered who was who or if it was so small that you know, it was a private party and more left with someone named Stefanos that may or may not have been a relation to Kate. I would love to get more comments on that. I would love to start shedding a little bit of light on this mysterious party that no one knows anybody at and no one recalls who Mora left with. Well, we'd love to drop it. I think that's really the point, is we'd love to know one way or another where whether we should follow these clues or drop it because it didn't have anything to do with the actual disappearance. The only way that this can possibly be dropped, that this topic can go away, is if the people who are at the party are heard. And people who are listening can judge what they're saying. Because right now, all we have are... Those people who are at the party who other investigators have attempted to contact have only shut the door in their face and said they're not talking about this. They're not doing themselves any good by shutting people up. They're not even saying anything. They're saying, I'm not talking about it. I don't remember what happened. Yeah, it's definitely unlike a lot of friends that I have, unlike a lot of friend groups that I know. Unless there's some motive to be secretive. It's tough to say. On the Reddit blog, someone named Legends444 wrote, I honestly don't understand why people find this case particularly interesting. Can someone let me in on the intrigue? I know all of the details. I'm just unsure what has everyone so hooked. And I think the best response to that was right below it, Clancy Dog 4 says, I'm surprised you know all the details and aren't intrigued. I don't think he really needed to say anything more than that. I love mysteries. I don't know that I believe in Bigfoot, but I love the mystery of Bigfoot. So this mystery, the Moramari one, is one of the best I've ever heard. So it, it surprises me that someone doesn't find it interesting. I know for me what makes this case interesting and intriguing is that it happens unintentionally. You stumble upon this missing girl, you see the picture for the first time, pretty girl, nice smile, and then the more you look into it, every element is overturned and there's another element beneath that that is more confusing than the mystery that you tried to uncover. The more you look into it, no detail in this case has a clear answer. And you get sucked in. Occam's razor is a problem-solving principle devised by William Occam. The principle states that among competing hypotheses that predict equally well, the one with the fewest assumptions should be selected. More complicated solutions may ultimately prove to be better predictions or be true, but the fewer assumptions that are made, the better, and usually lead to the correct answer. And with the Maramari one, it's difficult because some people will say, 
Well, the most obvious thing was that she was abducted by some opportunistic serial killer. Can't you see that? Or they'll say the most obvious thing is that she needed to get away and she's hiding out somewhere in Canada. Why don't you see that? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.